Two. Good evening and welcome to Mets 360 here on Cast. I'm your host Brian Jora, and very pleased to welcome back to to the podcast the uh, former Mets 360 writer and current broadcaster of the the Rail Splitters. That's Joe Basile. <laughs> Joe, who tell us tell us who the Rail Splitters are? Yeah, the uh, the Scranton Wilkesbury Rail Riders are the Rail Riders. No, no, no it's it's all right. It's all right. Um, we're the uh, AAA affiliate of the uh, the New York Yankees. And, no! Uh, I know, I know. The Yankees? Oh, the Yankees. you're hurting me. Okay, but I'll give you I'll give you two reasons why that's not necessarily bad. Um, one, we've lost half our roster over the last week with all the Yankees injuries and guys <laughs> getting called up. Um, and two, it's, uh, it's just fun to see a lot of different guys come in, and uh, our manager is... And you have to be a big Mets fan to remember this, but uh, one-time New York Met Jay Bell is uh, is managing us this year. Uh, now that that's something we'd really rather not remember. <laughs> Jay Bell's Mets career, mm-hmm. if I recall correctly, was pretty much a dismal failure. It yeah, was it was near the end of his career, and I think he hit uh, a buck twenty-nine. Yeah, it was his uh, his last year uh, of an eighteen-year major league career. That was the '03 Mets. They were. Just oh my goodness, that was such a bad team overall, um, and like that was right at the point where I was beginning to be a really big fan. So I watched a lot of Roberto Alomar and Jeremy Burnett's <laughs> just uh, stink up the joint for uh, for most of that year before they they started shipping guys out. And yeah, Jay J- Bell was part of it. I haven't brought that up to him yet because I'm sure he wants to forget about the time that he spent at Shea Stadium too. So you've had a chance to interview him a couple of times. Um, what uh, what's your overall impression of Mr. Bell? Good guy, good manager. Good guy, um, good manager. It seems like uh, he's been in the Yankees system now for a couple of years. He was in uh, High A Tampa, won the Florida State League regular season championship uh, his year there. He was with the Trenton Thunder last year, uh, moved up to Double A, and he won the Eastern League regular season championship uh, with the Thunder. So. Uh, you know, his two stops, he's won, uh, you know, best record in the regular season. The playoffs hasn't necessarily been that, but, uh, you know, he's he's had success, and obviously a lot of that comes down to uh, some pretty good prospects in the Yankees system that have come through over the last few years, uh, and, and that's been a lot of fun to watch too. Um, but I'm also excited that the Syracuse Mets are a thing now, and so we'll get to see some of the Mets AAA guys, whether it's Tebow at the end of the month or – whoever shuffles up from Binghamton uh, throughout the year. Now, be aware that uh, when Tebow mania uh, hits Scranton, that uh, <laughs> you're probably going to have to leave a little bit earlier to get to the uh, park on time. There there could be oh, yeah. very well be a sellout that day. Yeah, it's uh, we're preparing for that. Um, there's a, a reality show that airs on the Yes Network about the Rail Riders. It's called Homegrown. And, uh, yeah, we've been coordinating with them because obviously they want to come in and do their Tebow stuff and uh, it's um, it's an interesting wrinkle uh, to the season uh, having that come through at the end of April and and all the uh, the fiat although from everything I've heard from anyone who's dealt with him in the last couple of years uh, he's been great about it which is good um, and I mean hey we had our opening day today and uh, Gio Gonzalez was pitching for us he, he didn't have a a great outing, but uh, a lot of a lot of big league names kind of coming through the international league this year, which is which is interesting. 
Now, uh, the Mets played today as well, but they mm -hmm. lost, so we're not going to dwell too much about that. Yep. I want to start off talking about last night's game, because mm -hmm. last night's game was, I don't know, awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason it was that way was because Jacob deGrom, uh, it was absolutely magnificent. Seven shutout innings, career high, 14 strikeouts, and, and what the hey, he hit a home run. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, watching him these first two starts of the year, he seems even better than last year. Yeah. And uh, do you think that's possible, or do you think that was mostly because he was facing uh, a lineup last night with not a whole lot of uh, uh, upper-level major league talent? Honestly, I think it's a little of both. Um, obviously, the Marlins, even compared to where they were last year, are uh, there's not a whole lot in that lineup um, that if you're a pitcher, that necessarily scares you. But that being said, I mean, they, they were feisty in the first two games of that series. They nearly uh, pulled out the opener on Monday night and, um, and the same on Tuesday as well. So, uh, I mean, they can hit a little bit. And they've been a team that in the past have given Jacob DeGrom problems. I remember last year, I think, uh, his worst start was in April down in Miami. Uh, he, he got beat up a little bit before he went on, you know, the great run that he's still on. But what I think you saw yesterday and, and listening to the game on the radio a little bit uh, toward the end, uh, Howie Rose and Wayne Randazzo were talking about this, was he started off that game as basically fastball, slider, and mixing in a curveball, which looked really good from, from the little bit that I saw. And then all of a sudden, in the fifth inning, sixth inning, and seventh inning, he started mixing the changeup in and got his last three strikeouts in the seventh inning on that changeup. And that, to me, shows a little bit of a progression in his game. I, I mean, he saved that one weapon for later in the game, that third time through, and that is kind of the next step in pitching. You know, you talk about you show two or three weapons early on, then you break something out later, and that allows you to have success later in the game like he did yesterday. So that's a new wrinkle on top of the great control and the electric stuff that we saw last night. Um, maybe not in terms of ERA, that he can get much better because I don't really know how you do much better than a 1.7. Um, but certainly I think uh, I think that he's at least on pace to be as good as he was last year. To me, even uh, more impressive, I guess, than the performance, the, the 14 Ks and the, and the mm -hmm. home run was the fact that his pitch count was, I think, was in the upper 90s at the end of the sixth inning and they let him go out for the seventh which is something yep. that Mickey Calloway uh, didn't do last year, last April, to be quite frank. And poor Mickey is, is getting beat up uh, all around, uh, mostly for his uh, bullpen, bullpen deployment, also a little bit about his, his uh, pinch-hitting uh, mm -hmm. choices. So I want to at least before, you know, I don't know if we're going to beat up on Mickey tonight, but be, mm -hmm. be, if we do, be, before that happens, I, I would like to at least credit him for um, uh, moving away from what his pattern was certainly last April of uh, looking to get the starting pitcher out of the game at the, the first chance possible. He easily could have taken DeGrom out after six innings last night and chose not to do that. So way to go, Mickey. Yeah, and uh, and I think that that shows a lot more trust. Uh, you know, it's another year that he knows that Jacob DeGrom can go out there and throw 110 pitches in April and, and be fine. 
Um, and I also feel like there was that thing last year at the beginning of the season where not only Mickey Callaway, but you think about Gabe Kapler down in Philadelphia was very much about we are not going to let, no matter who our starter is, we're not going to let him face the lineup for a third time. And that kind of fell away after maybe the first month or so of the season. Um, and it just kind of got back to at least more of a, you know, 100 pitches, how you feeling kind of a kind of a thing, which is uh, probably a better way of, of managing your, your starting pitching. Obviously, DeGrom has been just a fantastic story, but I think that most everyone else would say that uh, if you wanted to see what the, the next best story is, then it might be the rejuvenation of Chili Davis. Last year, Chili Davis, uh, first year as a, a hitting instructor with the Cubs, and it didn't go well. Uh, I don't think that the uh, Cubs players were necessarily buying what Davis was selling, and they let him go after one year. The Mets scooped him up, and, and now everyone's praising this new hitting identity that the Mets allegedly have of, of going to the opposite field and not trying to hit a three-run home run every time up. So is this a case of, of the hits falling in? So regardless of what the hitting philosophy is, that it's going to look good because everyone's hitting 350? Or do you think that this approach can lead to a stronger hitting club for all 162 games? I think that it's just, uh, you know, it's it's six games into the season, and it's one of those times where you've got a bunch of guys who are, who are kind of clicking right off the bat, and the hits are falling in. Uh, that being said, I, I don't necessarily think that the approach that he brings is necessarily a bad one. Um, yeah, I love home runs just as much as anyone else, but at the same time, you've got pitchers right now who are arguably the most talented pitchers that have ever thrown a baseball. I mean, you've got multiple guys on every team who can throw 98 miles an hour, and, and that's just never been the case before. So if everyone was throwing 93, 94... Yeah, maybe going up and trying to hit a home run every time could be a decent approach. But if they're going 98, if they're coming out with sliders that are running up into the low to mid-90s now, um, you have to try to make some adjustments to your approach at the plate. And if it's just get it, get your bat on the ball, knock it to the opposite fields, and, uh, and hope that it falls in, um, you know, that's probably better than, you know, take a big hack and probably miss but maybe you hit the ball 450 feet now the season has gotten off to a, a great start as we mm -hmm. both mentioned but we're going to see a roster shake up here pretty soon because three guys who were thought to be on the 25 man roster heading into spring training were not ready to go at the beginning of the year and and uh, at least two of them are going to be coming back probably within a week and the third one probably not far beyond that and those those three are uh, Travis Darno, uh, Todd Frazier, and Jed Lowry, with uh, Lowry being the, the the last one to return. So, how do you see the roster shaking out once these uh, these veterans return? Uh, if I were to look into my crystal ball and and kind of see and and take a guess, I would say the first of Frazier or Lowry to come back, and and from what I'm guessing, it's going to be Frazier. Um, Luis Guillorme goes down. Uh, I think he's pretty obviously the odd man out. He's only been in two games. He's had one at bat. 
very much the the 25th man on the roster. And then I think when when it's Lowry's time, J.D. Davis is the guy that goes down, uh, quite frankly, because I think that he has played his way back to Syracuse. I mean, he's made a couple of plays, especially the other night at third base, uh, that were just not good. And, you know, he's hit a little bit, but he hasn't hit enough to make up for... um, you know some of the defensive liabilities, and uh, I mean, even even hitting wise, I mean, below the Mendoza line, it, it's it's um, it's pretty easy to see that those will probably be the guys that go down. And then, as far as the catching situation goes, once um, once Darno is back, that's a little more interesting because I don't think you can not have uh, Wilson Ramos be the guy uh, on this team now. Do you carry three catchers and keep uh, keep Nido up? I, I don't know. Probably not. Uh, so I could see at least a platoon, maybe to to get Darno some reps, or maybe he just comes back and goes to AAA. I mean, off the top of my head, I don't know what his option situation are. Um, but if you want him to play every day, uh, the way that Wilson Ramos has been going, I, I don't really see a way that you can. Just have Travis Darno come back and say, "All right, you're the guy now." And Wilson, thanks for the great work, but uh, but you got to go to backup duty. Yeah, I don't think the idea of uh, Darno being a starting catching is is even on the on the horizon. I don't, yeah. I don't think that's a, a possibility at all. I guess the big thing is what you mentioned: will they entertain the idea of three catchers? And ordinarily, I don't think that would be an issue at all. But the people in the mainstream media who follow the Mets keep bringing it up. And, you know, it's one of those smoke fire type things. Yeah. And to me, I, I don't see how it works with this particular roster, especially the way that most of the people have gotten off. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless you were really brave and wanted to go to six relief pitchers. And I don't see that happening now just because, you know, three or four relievers are, are struggling. I, I don't think that's an option. But clearly the Mets like Nito. Clearly they, yep. they see something they like. He worked very well with Syndergaard uh, last year, at the end of last year. And, you know, it, 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 maybe it's significant, maybe it's not. But he was the one who was behind the plate last night when, when DeGrom had such a fantastic start. So, yep. I mean, there, there's, there's some evidence mounting up that, you know, he's a pretty good handler of pitchers. So maybe they value that. Maybe they value that highly. I don't know. But uh, it, it'll be it'll be real interesting to see if they look for a reason to keep him around. But I want to circle back to the the first part because I, I disagree with you. You said that the first move when Frazier comes back would be to send down Giorme, and I think the first move is going to be to send down Davis because once you have Todd Frazier, what does Davis do or what does Davis give you that Frazier doesn't give you? Mm-hmm. Davis's calling card is he's a righty who hits lefties well. Frazier's a righty. You know, maybe he's not a, a masher against lefties, but he's going to do better against lefties mm-hmm. than he does against righties. What does um, Davis do in the infield? Well, he plays third base, he plays first base. What's Frazier do? He plays third base, he plays first base. It, yep. it just seems redundant. And because of his contract, obviously they're going to go with Frazier. So I think the first move is that they're gonna they're gonna send Davis down. Yeah, I I guess I can't really argue with that too much. Uh, yeah, if they want to go 
literally position for position. Um, you know, Lowry's a middle infielder. Guillaume's a middle infielder. Corner infielder for Davis, same for Frazier. So, yeah, it would make sense for it to be that way. But um, I'm guessing we're at least in agreement that those are the two guys that go when Frazier and Lowry are both kind of back to 100%. And the other guy who would be in the mix would be Dominic Smith. Um, you know, I don't I don't know if there's anything that Smith necessarily gains by going back to AAA for another year. Mm-hmm. And certainly when he's been given a shot here, uh, both in spring training and in the early going, he's, he seems to have produced, seems to be out of that doghouse that he was probably in this time last year. Yep. Um, but, you know, again, it's a, it's a roster crunch. And, you know, maybe they, they value Yorme's ability to uh, – provide a backup shortstop. I know everyone talks about Jed Lowry as the yeah. backup shortstop, but Lowry hasn't played a game at short the last two years mm-hmm. and has pre- played less than 30 games the last four years. So the idea that, oh, yeah, well, Jed Lowry can play, you know, and, and if it's once a month giving Rosario a rest, it, it's probably all right. But the issue is what happens if he sprains his finger and he's out for five days? Do you want Jed Lowry playing shortstop for five days? Probably not. Probably not, exactly. So, I mean, I think that's the thing that Giorme has in his corner. But, geez, it'd be nice if he went in and did something, <laughs> you know. Yeah. He, uh, he, he, hasn't, he hasn't shown us a whole lot at the major league level. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the, the deck may be stacked against him because of that. But, I mean, I'd, you, who do you send down? I, I think Davis is the obvious first choice to go. But after that, the only thing – that I could think of outside the box, outside of the six-man uh, bullpen, which I don't think is going to happen, is maybe they decide that Keon Broxton is good enough and that they don't need Juan Lagares. Talking about guys who you know don't do a whole lot in the batter's box. Yeah, uh, and that's certainly a possibility. I don't know if they're necessarily thrilled, I guess, with everyday center fielder Keon Broxton. I, I mean... Probably not all that thrilled with everyday center fielder Juan McGarris, but um, I don't know if you'd want to go down to just kind of three true outfielders in that situation. Um, you know, I know we've seen a lot of Jeff McNeil in left field uh, in the early going, and we saw a little bit of Dominic Smith in the outfield last year, but um, yeah, I, I feel like they'd probably be hesitant just to go down to, to three quote unquote true outfielders on the roster. All right, well, I think we've delayed it as long as we possibly can. I think we got to talk about Mickey Calloway. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, I think if you, you ask the guy on the street, you know, what's, what's been the worst thing so far about the, the Mets season, he'd probably say, oh, Mickey Calloway's managing. Mm-hmm. Poor Mickey. Um, you know, the, the bullpen, certainly, the bullpen deployment, um, you know, it, it, it seems horrible. And is that a major issue for you, or, or do you think that people are just looking – for something to harp on, given that most everything else is going so well? Uh, I think part of it is that people are, are kind of looking for something to harp on. I, I mean, I feel like that's our natural inclination just as fans, is we're always looking for something to to not be happy about even when things are going great. Uh, as where I have Yankee fan friends, they won 100 games last year, 100 games, and in September they're complaining about something or the other. It's like, you know, you're you're one of the best teams in baseball. Let's let's put this all into perspective here. And uh, you know, 
I'm a little worried, I guess, with just some of the frequency of, you know, who's been used. Edwin Diaz, I mean, has already been in four games out of the first six. Um, you know, we've seen a lot out of him. Uh, Emilia has been used a lot. Justin Wilson has gone multiple innings uh, a couple of times. You know, so I guess that is something that in your head you're thinking like, all right, let's be careful here. Let's not blow out Edwin Diaz, especially in April. Um, you know, let's let's give him a day off or, or Seth Lugo throwing 40-some-odd pitches and uh, being a little bit shaky and, and getting as much work as he's gotten in high-leverage situations right now. Um, but overall, I mean, I don't have ton to complain about with that um but again I, I know that for me as a fan and for everyone else as a fan you're always looking to nitpick and and there's always something to second guess uh with your manager especially when it comes to the bullpen um you know no matter how good or, or how bad of a season you're having uh so at least at least this early i'm not gonna gonna start dumping on mickey calloway for the bullpen just yet well, at least one person out there in, in Metsland is not bashing Mickey, so I'm happy for him. <laughs> you know, the, I mean, the the club is five and two, so you'd think he would get uh, at least a little bit of a honeymoon period uh, somewhere. Mm -hmm. But let's uh, let's talk about something that that's been real positive, and and that's Pete Alonso. Yeah. I know a lot of people were were real excited about Alonso coming coming into the season, and and I guess I was more guarded optimism, maybe. Maybe I was afraid to, to, to let myself get too far ahead and you know, you know dream on that 40 home run power that he certainly has. But he's looked really good. And what do you think about his start? What do you think 2019 has in store for Alonso? I, I'm, honestly, I think it's been about a best-case scenario for Pete Alonso coming up this year. Um, you know, whenever, whenever you have a prospect that gets as much hype as he was getting last year, um, I find it's always best to be a little bit wary of that because uh, you don't know how much of that is just the, the prospect typing machine and, uh, you know, and, and fans who are so attached to prospects. Um, but Pete Alonso has been every bit of the hype that was surrounding him so far. Um, he's looked a little awkward around first base at times, but he's gotten the job done. Um, you know, it's been an effective awkwardness, I guess, uh, you know, and, and he's hit the cover off the ball um, just the way that you thought he could. I, I mean, not to get too much into exit velocities, but uh, the ball just flies off his bat, um, and it, and it, he really looks like he can be special. Um, the strikeouts have been a little high, but, I mean, it's we're seven games into the season, and he's a rookie his first time through the league. Uh, I'll be interested to see second time around once the scouting report really gets out on him at the major league level um you know how teams start pitching to him and and how he then adjusts to it but at least for now he's kind of being that rare prospect over the last couple of years for the Mets that's come up and been immediately effective I mean you think about Ahmed Rosario um we were just talking about Luis Guillorme and others really I guess Michael Conforto was the last one that kind of came up and was immediately good. Um, 
so that's that's kind of a nice refreshing uh, change of pace for the Mets as well uh, to have a a guy that comes up and just just tears it up for the first week or so. We were told that he was a poor defender mm-hmm. and that he was so bad at first base he may not even be able to uh, be a National League player, that he may need to be a DH. Mm-hmm. And to me, his fielding hasn't been anything remotely like that. And I, he, he doesn't have very much mobility. I mean, mm-hmm. let's be honest. He's not a very mobile first baseman. Yeah. He's not going to be... Uh, ranging far either either in or out left or right that that's not part of the package but if you wanted your first baseman to be good at one thing you'd say well let's have him be able to make scoops from throws in the dirt because we see one of those every game Mm -hmm. and he seems to be excellent at that his footwork around the bag is is 10 times better than than what i was led to believe um and and Again, his range is horrible. He's not going to, to get to a lot of balls that aren't hit right to him. But he moves around the bag great. And I mean, it, he doesn't need to improve anything defensively, in my opinion, from where he is right now. Yeah, and that's – I think that's just about right. I mean, where he's at right now, if he can hit the way that he projects to hit, obviously he's not going to keep up you know, hitting 400 – um, but, you know, if he can be a really good offensive first baseman and just kind of be average defensively, it's not going to be Keith Hernandez over there, but he's not going to be Mike Piazza over there either. Um, I, I take that because that's a very, very valuable player and, and something the Mets haven't had at that position in a very long time. I mean, Lucas Duda there for maybe a season, but, um, I mean, I... Carlos Delgado, I think, was the last really good Mets first baseman. And that's, I mean, that's 10 years ago now. So I I do have concerns still about pitchers being able to exploit him. Mm -hmm. But you'd say that about any young player. Yeah. So the fact that, to me, that the defense, I don't think, is going to be an issue uh, is a huge uh, relief. And... You know, the, the pitchers are going to uh, exploit him. The average is going to come down. But I don't care who you are. Pitchers make mistakes, and I, I think he's going to crush mistakes. Yeah, and he's proven that. I mean, he's one of those hitters that the ball just looks a little bit different coming off his bat. Uh, whatever it is that he does. I mean, there's there's a handful of those guys that just when they make contact, it sounds a little different. And it looks a little different. And Pete Alonso is, is one of those players. And a bright future, I think, is, uh, is just the beginning. We talked about Jeff McNeil a little bit earlier. Yep. And I think that once all of the walking wounded return, he's going to transition to a full-time outfielder. Mm-hmm. Um, you have, uh, I sense, uh, some concerns about him playing in the outfield. Well, is that correct? What do you think? Uh, a little bit. Uh, I mean, and part of that is is gun shyness from the Daniel Murphy and, and Lucas Duda experiments in the outfield uh, that went so poorly. Now, I know McNeil played some outfield in college, but let's also remember, Jeff McNeil's going to be 27 this year. College is... <laughs> was a few years ago. Yeah, it's <laughs> half a dozen years in his rearview mirror. Like, it, it, that's a long time ago. 
and he's been basically nothing but an infielder coming up through the Mets system. So, um, you know, it's hopefully left field is like riding a bike for him. Um, but I think e even in today's game you saw there's probably going to be some growing pains out there. Um, and I think he can tolerate that. I, I think he looks better in the short amount of time I've seen him out there than Daniel Murphy ever did uh, going around left field and, and much better and more mobile than Lucas Duda did when he was in the outfield. Um, so I'm cautiously optimistic that the Jeff McNeil outfielder experiment can work, um, but it's the caution that, that I'm taking there. The good news is it doesn't seem like he's taking that to the plate with him, though. Um, he's, he's still hitting um, it just as well as he was last year. It, it's really encouraging to see the good start that he's off to because yep. everyone was worried about that last year was a fluke. But um, uh, he, he's trying his best to disprove that notion. But uh, like you, it, it's, it's not, I, I don't think it's going to be pretty watching him play the outfield. He seems to be fine. Balls hit right at him. Balls hit uh, a few feet to the side. Mm -hmm. But if he has to run, especially if he has to run behind him, uh, to, to make a catch, uh, my advice is to close your eyes. It's it's not going to look good. Yeah, and and it's funny because I think that this Mets team right now would really benefit from uh, having the DH in the National League. Uh, I think this is a roster, whether you're looking at throwing Dominic Smith in that role, putting Jeff McNeil in that role, they've got guys that are kind of round pegs in square holes or square pegs and round holes, however you want to look at it, uh, you know, on the defensive side, that if there was a DH, they would fit in perfectly. Um, that's probably a couple of years away from happening, but uh, but it just kind of my own little sidebar there is, is that I think McNeil would make an excellent DH. Um, unfortunately, he's in the wrong league for that. All right, well, since you had a sidebar, I'm going to take one, too. Sure. Um, you know, he was uh, perfectly adequate last year at second base. Yep. And if they didn't uh, uh, pick up somebody with a $100 million contract to play his position, mm -hmm. he'd, he'd slot in fine there, and we, we wouldn't be worried about this defensive issue. That's true, yeah. I mean, if not for trading for Robinson Cano, it's Jeff McNeil is the everyday second baseman for this team. Um, maybe he splits time there with Jed Lowry once he gets healthy and Lowry just does whatever he's going to end up doing on this team um, honestly I don't know what on earth Lowry's going to do I guess a little bit at third base with Frazier and McNeil a little bit at second base with Gano a little bit at first like, it's nice to have a utility guy but um, yeah he, he's kind of a weird fit uh, but but yeah, it would be it would be Jeff McNeil for sure without Cano. Well, let's uh, get back to the mound. I want to talk a little bit about uh, Stephen Matz. I think uh, mm -hmm. some people uh, were not necessarily very high on him. Uh, uh, a little disappointed last year that he was healthy, but uh, didn't seem to be the the dominating guy that we were hoping that that he would be with if he was ever able to to turn around and give you 28, 30 starts like he did last year. Um, his first appearance was all right. It was against the Marlins, so you, you have to uh, take it with a grain of salt. But uh, he, he certainly was acceptable. Um, 
what are your uh, expectations for Mats in 2019? My expectations this year for Steve Mats is he's going to be a really good fourth starter. <laughs> you know, and, and that's all the Mets really need him to be. I, I, I don't think that he's going to be that ace-level pitcher that maybe once upon a time we thought he could be just because of all the injuries that have mounted up over the years, uh, you know, the multiple Tommy Johns and, and everything else, um, you know, those things, they take their toll. You can come back, but um, you're never quite the same. And I think that for Mats, if he can just kind of slot in, be that guy every fourth day or every fifth day as the fourth starter, I should say, who goes out there and, and gives you five or six good innings, um, I think you're satisfied with that. I, I think the Mets did enough to upgrade the bullpen. I think they did enough to upgrade the offense that if you can get serviceable work out of Steve Matz, even even what you got out of him last year, I think you're in good shape. I mean, the record obviously wasn't pretty, but um, there were flashes that he showed last year of being that really good guy. And if he can capture that in a bottle for a little bit and go on a run um, and keep some of those blow-up starts to a minimum um, and maybe not have them be as bad and, and take a little bit of that next step forward. Um, that's what I'd like to see out of him this year. But but honestly, my expectations aren't too terribly high for Steve Matz. Anything, anything more than he gave us last year, I think, would be, um, would be a real positive. Matt's ended last year on a really strong note, but even with that good pitching that he gave his last six or eight starts or so, mm-hmm. there was still the issue with the gopher ball. Yep. And I think that that's the one thing that you're, you're just going to have to accept. I think that Matt's is going to give up a home run, you know, an, an average a home run every eight innings or so, mm-hmm. and you'd like, to, you'd like it to be, you know, ten. And that's just not on the table. I think that you're going to have to live with the fact that Matt's is going to give you up gopher balls. His walks were a little yep. elevated last year, so to me it'll be interesting to see if he can get his walks back down and, and maybe just cut that home run rate just a little bit. But, um, yeah, yeah, and, and Vargas is, is even more extreme with the, the home runs. He, he gave up a, a yep. lot last year. I think he's already given him, uh, up one in his, his first start this year too. So to me those two guys and and the lefties with the gopher ball troubles and – I didn't like them going back-to-back, and, and the Mets announced that uh, they're going to have Mats leapfrog. Mats is going to take the, the next start after the day off tomorrow. Mats will start on Saturday, and they're going to push Wheeler back to Sunday. So I think that's a good decision. Yeah, you want to you break up those lefties as best as you can. It, I, they're obviously not necessarily similar because Mats throws a little bit harder, but, yeah, you, you always want to – I think putting Wheeler in between the two will – will be a benefit, at very least, to Jason Vargas. All right, we have reached the crazy prediction uh, time in the podcast. I'll I'll give you a crazy prediction. I'll ask you to comment on it, see if you think it's crazy or not, and then I'll ask you to uh, give me a crazy prediction of your own. Are you ready? Yep. My crazy prediction, tying into the last question. Stephen Matz, mind you, this is a crazy prediction. Steven Matz will end the 2019 season with a better whip than John Lester. So tell me, how crazy is that? 
you know, I don't know if it's necessarily as crazy as it might sound. I think part of that is what I think of John Lester at this point in his career. Um, I don't, I don't have a, a ton of confidence. And I mean, you look at even just what kind of Zips is saying for for Matts at about a a one three five whip, and Lester. I mean, that's. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Uh, Joe, yeah. you there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. We lost you for just half a second. All right, you're here. All right, no. Uh, I was going to say, Lester's not really the same guy that he was when the Cubs signed him a few years ago. And just quickly pulling up the, the Zips predictions, uh, Matt's was a 1.35 whip, and Lester's projected for a 1.29 this year. So that's, uh, I think that's within within striking distance if, if Matt's, like I was saying before, is able to just you know, cut down on some of the blow-up appearances and, and be a little bit better over the long haul. Uh, he can bring that down a little bit and, yeah, I, I maybe out-pitch uh, John Lester in, in terms of whip. Um, it's going to take a lot. Probably not likely, but uh, but certainly possible. All right, so you didn't think mine was crazy. Show me what a crazy prediction is like. Okay, a real crazy prediction for you. Carlos Gomez will be a regular starter in the outfield by the end of the season. Wow. Um, uh, I bow. You you showed me what a crazy prediction is. That, sir. I'm, I'm going way out on a limb. Now, we were talking before we started recording uh, for anyone just out there listening, and I was wondering how specific I should go with the crazy prediction my general one that wasn't specific was somebody who's not currently on the 40 man is going to be a regular starter by the end of the year um i decided to go a little more specific well i'm glad you went specific because i think that uh, certainly uh rajay davis uh looked uh acceptable uh, during spring training so he would have been mm-hmm. In, in the mix for there, and it, it yep. seems like there was another outfielder um, who was uh, in the mix, although his name escapes me right now. But the idea that Carlos Gomez, all these years after the, the Mets signed him as an international free agent, the idea that he could come up and, and be not only a contributor but a starter on uh, a potential playoff team. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we, don't, we don't even really remember – we, o- we only remember the Mets half. You know, they were going to send Wilmer Flores out of town, and then he cried on the mm-hmm. field. That was going to be Carlos Gomez. Yep. So in, in, a, in, a, in a weird, poetic way, I guess I can see it. Mm-hmm. But in a, in a realistic reality way, I, I don't see it at all. I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the crazy stamp out. I'm, I'm <laughs> branding your forehead crazy. Yeah, I'll, uh, I, I accept that. I mean... It's so interesting. I don't know if anyone has taken a look at the Syracuse Mets roster right now and some of the names that are on there. I mean, there's there's a lot of guys in Syracuse right now who are not on the 40-man who I can easily see at least getting time with the Mets this year, whether it's Hechevaria, Dilson Herrera, Danny Espinosa, uh, Rajai Davis, like you said, uh, Gregor Blanco. Uh, is another Blanco, outfielder down there. The guy I was thinking of. 
Um, Archimedes Camadero, who right-handed reliever who throws 98. Um, I want to say he was at the Marlins a couple of years ago in the big leagues. And um, There's some intriguing names for sure down there. And, and Gomez, at least for me, is, uh, is one that, look, if he goes down there and he just starts tearing up the league, call him up and, and run him out there if the Jeff McNeil in the outfield experiment isn't going well and somebody ends up getting hurt or, uh, you know, if, uh, if there's just a, a need for, for a right-handed bat out there. You know, the, the idea that uh, McNeil may not make it certainly, uh, may not make it defensively certainly has uh, a lot of momentum with it. Juan Lagares has never proven the ability to hit over an extended period of time. Keon Broxton was awful last year. So you would think that there's a path, maybe not an easy path, but there is a path. And, you know, Gomez, right after the the trade when the Mets sent him to the Twins and the the Johan Santana deal, he didn't look like much and then kind of fell off the radar completely and then came back and then had a couple of, either all-star or near all-star type seasons and then seemed to fall off again. And he's just a guy who's had such an interesting career. You know, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of ups and downs. And then, you know, who knows? Maybe there's one more up left in it. Um, I would, I certainly wouldn't wager on it. So I, I like I like the craziness. You you brought the craziness to the table tonight. <laughs> I, uh, I appreciate that. I, I feel like I haven't gone that crazy the first couple times I've been on and giving the crazy predictions, so so I'm glad that I was able to, to go a little over the top here today. All right, well, let's talk uh, again about somebody that we mentioned earlier, and that's uh, Wilson Ramos, who's, mm-hmm. I mean, let's face it, he's he's essentially been hitting everything in sight and, and looks real good, too. Um, you have any concerns about him defensively? You know, everyone talks about, yeah, he's going to be an upgrade, throwing out base runners. Uh, and certainly that was a, a low bar to clear. But have you seen anything else that uh, uh, strikes you one way or the other? Uh, not really. I, I mean, I, I have no issue with anything for Wilson Ramos defensively. I mean, I know throughout his career he's been at least, you know, a, a league average defender, if not a little bit above average at the catcher spot. And, and he's fallen off a little bit over the last couple of years as he's gotten older. But, uh, I mean, he's still someone who can be – a solid defensive catcher, and one thing he's done is is hit. Um, I mean, throughout his time, and you know, you look at the crosstown rivals up in the Bronx. They've got a catcher in Gary Sanchez, who, I mean, has got all kinds of issues behind the plate. Um, he's good at throwing guys out, and is is kind of a a league average defensive catcher, even with all of his pass ball problems. Um, but because he can hit. He's so much of a value at that position. So, yeah, I, I take average defense out of Wilson Ramos um, and keep that bat in the lineup because that at the catcher spot is uh, is very hard to find, obviously. And, uh, and yeah, I, I've, I've got no problem. And, yeah, throwing out base runners, obviously he's been better than Darno, um, who, I mean, is, is bad, is just flat-out bad at throwing out runners. Um, so that's been an upgrade, and uh, it seems like he's handled pitchers well, and it seems like uh, like Nito has, has done the same thing when he's come in. So I, I kind of like the catching tandem where it's at uh, with the both of them. 
it was pretty clear that the Mets were going to address the catcher situation and mm-hmm. it seemed like they had three targets that they were talking to at various points of the offseason. Yep. One was a trade for JT Realmuto and the other two were free agent signings. It was either going to be Ramos or uh, Yasmani Grandal. Mm-hmm. And certainly it seemed hot, like trade discussions with the Marlins were hot and heavy, that that was really their first option was to, to make a trade for Real Muto. And yeah. some of the proposals that were being bandied about, um, I don't know, I, I think it would have been criminal if the, the Mets had agreed to them. So it seemed like all we were hearing about was Real Muto, Real Muto, Real Muto. And then one day, oh yeah, we've signed um, uh, Ramos to a two-year deal. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, wow! Yeah. And so I was really happy that they didn't pay the freight in a trade for Real Muto. Yeah, and and, I, and and I was happy that they got Ramos on a two-year deal because you know the 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 rumors was that that Grandal wanted like a four-year deal. Yeah. So two-year deal for a catcher, a guy who hits, guys who throws out base runners. Very excited. I was, I I think it was the best move that Van Wagenen did in the off-season. Yeah. It, it, sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was gonna say no. I I, I really liked the move at the time. I, I wish they could have found a way to swing a Rio Muto trade. Um, but yeah, from what was leaking out that the Marlins were supposedly asking for, um, not at that price. Uh, that that was way too much to ask for when Wilson Ramos was available on the deal that he signed for. And he came in with a reputation as a, a, an excellent offensive catcher, and what we've mm-hmm. seen early on, he, he certainly looks that way. Uh, it looks healthy. You know, there, there's been some injury concerns the last uh, few years. Looks very healthy. Um, the arm on throws to second base looks strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe hasn't had a whole lot of results, but you know, with this Mets pitching staff, I, I don't think I will, I'm going to put the blame on him. But the one thing that I see while watching him catch is I don't think we're going to I don't think we're going to get a whole lot of uh, borderline strikes called. He he doesn't seem very um, smooth and stable. Behind, it seems like there's a lot of movement behind the plate when he catches. And I think that's one of the things that they talk about the, with the catchers who've, who've uh, worked to, to improve on their, on their framing techniques is that they, they become more still. And there seems to be a lot of movement behind the plate, so I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about that. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's been something I've noticed too is, yeah, there's, he's not kind of that rigid, good framer he he kind of uh is a lot and and when you have that kind of movement that can cost you strikes because in two ways you're either moving it so that it looks like it's a ball or there's so much movement that the umpire goes all right you're trying to trick me ball um you know because that can be a thing is if you if you do it too much or, or you're kind of too obvious about trying to bring it back and make it a strike um that uh, that it can work against you like that. And, uh, I don't think Ramos has necessarily cost him in terms of that just yet, but I I don't think he's necessarily uh, helping out, uh, kind of neutral to, to maybe a little bit uh, below average just because of all that movement and, uh, like you were talking about. All right, well, let's, uh, let's see if we can get one more question in here, and um, that's Brandon Nimmo. Mm-hmm. Um, Loved Brandon Nimmo, was very excited. One of the best things about last year was that he got the opportunity to go out there and, and play on a regular basis and put up a, a 150 OPS plus mark, which is tremendous. 
Mm-hmm. But he had trouble with strikeouts last year, had an elevated strikeout rate. And, and this year, it seems even worse. So yep. what's going on with Nimmo and the strikeouts? I think it's just early season struggles. Uh, you know, obviously slumps at the beginning of years are always more magnified. And, and I'm sure if you went through, you know, his game logs from 2018, you could find a seven-game stretch where he was striking out just as much and, and struggling just as much at the plate. But, you know, because it's been right out of the gate this year, uh, it's really been magnified. I mean, he's two for his first 30 at the plate, which obviously is is not great. Um, and he's been, yeah, a high strikeout guy throughout his whole career, even in the minor leagues. And, uh, you know, struck out in almost half of his plate appearances this year, which... Is far too much, especially for a leadoff guy. I, I think that dropping him out of the leadoff spot until he figures it out and gets going again is is definitely warranted uh, at this point. But I'm not ready to hit the panic button just yet. Um, if he's still going like this, you know, a little bit later on in the month, you know, once we get maybe past Easter on the 21st, 22nd, that, that kind of third week of April, if he's still striking out like he is and, and having trouble finding hits, then then I'll really start to, to be concerned. But at least for now, I'm, I'm willing to write it off as just it's a, it's a bad stretch that's just kind of magnified that it's been the first seven games of the year. Gary Cohen had an interesting observation either in today's game or, or last night's game. And he, he says that the, the hitters are attacking Nimmo upstairs. Mm-hmm. And he's so conscious of the pitches upstairs that he's losing his uh, control of the strike zone on pitches that are downstairs. So it, it's almost by attacking one weakness, they've created two. And and I thought that that was a, a really interesting thing. Nimmo on his first uh, uh, trip to the plate today struck out, but then um, didn't strike out anymore after that. So I, I guess that's progress. So hopefully, like you said, uh, when a few more games are under the belt, he quit striking out 40% of the time because it's really, really tough to be a, a good player when you when you fan that much. Yeah, and I, and I definitely think there's something to it that he's kind of becoming a little bit conscious of the way that he's been attacked into his weakness. I, I mean, it's that old uh, you know Yogi Berra saying of you can't think and hit at the same time. And if you're Brandon Nimmo and... You're getting inside your own head thinking about, all right, got to make sure that I protect against the high pitch. And then they give you something that's out of that range. Um, you know, you're going to have a hard time hitting it. Uh, and, and that's, I think, part of what we've seen. He, he's been a little bit off. I mean, there's been pitches that he's gotten this year. That last year he was driving into the gaps for doubles or hitting out of the park for a home run that he's fouling back or he's swinging and missing at. And... Uh, so I think there's a little bit of a timing issue as well um, as kind of what's going on uh, upstairs underneath the helmet. Well, Joe, I, I want to ask uh, a broadcasting question sure. before before we go. And if, if I recall correctly, uh, MILB.com uh, mm-hmm. gives uh, free streams of the radio broadcast for the minor league games is that correct yep Yep. that's true so people can 
can can listen to to your calls of the of the home games. Is that right? Uh, yes, yes, they can. All right. So we had a thing here where um, the the radio station, uh, one of the radio stations, would talk to a college basketball um, a college basketball broadcaster, you yeah. know, before the weekend's games, and he would promo whatever games he was doing, and they'd have a nice little back and forth. And this was on a a um, uh, a rock station. It was not on a talk radio, sports talk station. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that they developed, and I want to see if you're open to this, is they would give the broadcaster a phrase to work into his call of the game. You know, and it would be something off the wall, like uh, that's uh, that's uh, picking up seashells off the backboard. You know, or, okay, or yeah. some such crazy type thing, mm-hmm. and and he would work it into the broadcast. It, you have to give him credit for for doing that. So I want to know is it do, do you think you could do something like that? If we came up with a, a somewhat off the wall yet somehow appropriate phrase, would you be willing to work that into one of your broadcasts? Yeah, for sure, absolutely. There, I, I used to do a thing where I would go around to a member of the front office and I'd say, all right. Uh, Joe, I think we, we've dropped you again. Can, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Can you hear okay. me? Yeah, yeah. All right. All right. Sorry. I was going to say, I, I used to do that with some, some front office members, just go up to them and say, all right, give me a word to work in um, or a phrase we're, to work we're in. talking a phrase here, not a yeah. word, a phrase. Yeah, G- give, me, give me a phrase. Uh, do, you, do you have something off the top of your head that I, uh, you'd like for I, me to try to get in? I, I don't know, but, but here's what I want to do. Okay. I, I want to... Um, uh, Think of a couple of days. Maybe we'll even throw it out to the readers of Mets 360 to come up with a, a phrase that mm-hmm. you could uh, uh, potentially work in without too much difficulty. I mean, okay. I, don't, I don't want you to, to strain either yourself or your credibility. But mm-hmm. I want it to be unique enough that people, if anybody is in on the joke, they'll go, that's the phrase, the phrase <laughs> that pays. So that's yes. what I want. So, um, uh, so give a couple of days. Uh, see, and then then I'll email you, and then then we'll pick like a date, and we'll get everyone to listen in, and and we'll 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 try to get you to to get that phrase in there. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, because I'm I'm doing you know some of the Rail Riders games, uh, our home openers next Thursday. I'm not on all their games, but a couple throughout the year, and I'll do all the pregame and postgame. Basically, they're Wayne Randazzo from last year, um, for better uh lack of a better analogy uh and then doing all kinds of college stuff too so i'll have i'll have plenty of plenty of opportunity to try to work some stuff in and uh i'll make sure that i i get a recording of it and and i'll send that over to you just in case anyone's not able to listen well i'm 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 excited about this um we'll uh we'll talk later and and try Mm -hmm. to confirm when your first uh when your first uh game doing the the broadcast that people can listen to is going to be and then We'll, we'll make sure that we have the phrase in time for that one. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm down well, for awesome. it. Well, Joe, I always appreciate you uh, coming by and remembering your roots where uh, some of some of this all started. Mm-hmm. Appreciate you uh, coming by and, and uh, dropping your knowledge and sharing your time. Absolutely. I always love to come on, Brian. All right. Good night, everybody, and goodbye. <laughs>